0: I know that you just recently sat down, but I would like to ask you to please stand to honor the word of God as it is read from Psalm 72 of Solomon. Give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. He will judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. The mountains will bring peace to the people and the hills by righteousness. He will bring justice to the poor of the people. He will save the children of the needy and he will break the pieces of the break in pieces. The oppressor. They shall fear you as long as the sun and moon endure throughout all generations. He shall come down like rain upon the grass before mowing like showers that water the earth. In his days, the righteous shall flourish and abundance of peace until the moon is no more. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Those who dwell in the wilderness, those who dwell in the wilderness will bow before him and his enemies will lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and of the isles will bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Saba will offer gifts. Yes, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. For he will deliver the needy when he cries, the poor also, and him who has no helper. He will spare the poor and needy, and will save the souls of the needy. He will redeem from their life. He will redeem their life from oppression and violence. And precious shall be their blood in his sight, and he shall live. And the gold of Sheba will be given to him. Prayer also will be made for him continually, and daily he shall be praised. There will be an abundance of grain on the earth, on the top of the mountains. Its fruit shall wave like Lebanon, and those of the city shall flourish like grass of the earth. His name shall endure forever. His name shall continue as long as the sun And men shall be blessed in him. All nations shall call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who only does wondrous things. And blessed be his glorious name forever. And let the whole earth be blessed with filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Thank you. Be seated. So this is part four of a four part series that began as let's take a deep dive into the last verse of Psalm 23, six, which basically reads, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all of the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Three weeks ago, we started this journey by taking a look at the concepts of what it means that surely goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our life as 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 spoken by David with confidence. And the idea was that undoubtedly the essence of what God and what and who God is in his goodness. Will hound us along with the undeserved, steadfast, loving kindness of God, that these things will continue to hound us for the whole of our days. And then most recently, <clears throat> the second half of the verse, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, last week, we looked at what this section of the verse, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever, could mean. And we noted that there's, there's some movement there. There's some var- variability of, of, of what could be communicated And last week, we looked at it from the idea of house as a building, a physical location where Christ, I'm sorry, where God would be worshipped through the process of the Old Testament sacrificial system. In that sense, David was making the statement of I will return to the house of the Lord for the length of my days, return as often as is possible to the place where I can be in the presence of God, where worship can take place. So long as I am able for the length of my days this week, <clears throat> we're going to look at a variation of how this can be interpreted and understood. We're not delving into some heresy here. There's a lot of flexibility in the language. And like we noted last week, the way that this whole concept is set up by God Himself in Second Samuel chapter seven <clears throat> leads to a both and understanding of this passage. So this week what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at this idea of house, not as a physical building, but rather as a family of descendants, a lineage, the family line that God promises to establish through David in Second Samuel chapter seven. Hear these words from Second Samuel 7, beginning in verse 8. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all of your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as i took it from saul whom i put away from before you and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me your throne shall be established forever god's covenant promise to david is both a covenant promise that incorporates the idea of a house that one day will be built for god a house of god in the presence of god for worship But more than that, it's a promise that God makes by his own name and by his own hand, that he will build the house of David, that he will give a great name to David and will establish for eternity the kingdom of David. So that brings us to Psalm 72, which, as we noted at the very beginning, is not a psalm of David. It is, in fact, a psalm of Solomon, and I'm not going to dispute that this morning. It's a beautiful psalm. And it kind of takes you by surprise when you understand that the dynamic of this psalm is the result of David's abiding in the lineage of the Lord for all time. It's really the fulfillment of God's promise to David. There is a realization in this psalm of a great name, there's a realization of established hope, there's the realization of an eternal kingdom. And as we're going to see, That may, in fact, point a little bit beyond just Solomon, the son of David. Now, in this psalm, there's an expression of power and purpose, and it's rooted in the goodness and mercy of God. This psalm is what is referred to as a coronation hymn. All right. It's going to be something that is celebrated and used at the time in which the king is crowned and celebration is made as with hope. And with joy, the nation looks to a new chapter of leadership and existence. And in this coronation hymn, Solomon is going to focus on what is most important for the king. Now, it's interesting because if you asked previous kings in history, what is most important as you become king and take over duties, you might get some very interesting answers. And those answers might center around things like power and how to hold on to it. Manipulation how to cause others to think the way that you want them to think. Okay, Solomon goes nowhere, nowhere even remotely close in any of this. As we're going to see, his focus is on using humbly what God provides to take care of the weakest and the most vulnerable. Because only in that setting, only in that accomplishment of kingship, will the true peace of God be ministered to his people. And that's an incredible thing. You know, we, we know the story of how Solomon goes on to um, respond to God telling him, you can ask for whatever it is that you would like. And his request is that God would give him wisdom. And God is pleased with that request by Solomon. And God grants him wisdom. And then he grants him everything else on top of it. Great wealth, great riches, great renown. Um, power and growth and expansion of Israel under his kingship. But this is one of those Psalms where that heart and desire for wisdom comes out very strongly. So who is Solomon? According to 1 Chronicles chapter 3, Solomon is one of the five sons of David who is born by Bathsheba. We're familiar with that story. What you may not know is that at the time in which she becomes his wife and stays with him, she bears a total of 5 sons for him. The first one obviously dies as part of God's judgment for the sin that brought them together. But four more sons are born to David through Bathsheba. In total, 1st Chronicles 3 tells us that David has a total of 19 sons. And if you're familiar with David's story, you know that all is not well with all of them. Okay, there's a lot of intrigue, there's treachery, there's usurping, there's murder. And not all 19 of David's sons makes it to adulthood unscathed. David promises Bathsheba that Solomon will be the one who is crowned and recognized as king after him. And this comes in the midst of trouble. This is not a simple, I have spoken, I am the king, so be it, and everybody responds. No, in fact, there's even more trouble related to the power vacuum that is perceived and what happens immediately before David's death. And one of his other sons sets himself up to be king. And that, of course, creates more conflict. But David makes the promise, despite trouble, that Solomon will be king. And David follows through on that promise, despite trouble. And Solomon is, in fact, crowned to be king. When God offers Solomon his request, like I previously mentioned, Solomon asks for wisdom, and God is pleased. According to 1 Kings chapter 3, we read that Solomon obeys and honors his father David, that he loves God, and that he walks in the statutes of his father. And that reality, that description, though it will become complicated over the course of his life, that description of Solomon is reflected in this psalm. So here is the structure of our coronation hymn from Psalm 72. It's basically three parts. Section number one is going to be the first purpose of kingship. The first purpose of kingship. This is in verses one through seven. And the first purpose of kingship, this might be familiar to you, is the concept of goodness. This is going to be set up with a progression of first what it is that the king will do. And then that flows secondly into what it's going to look like for those that are part of this kingdom. So kingdom kingship purpose number one, goodness, verses one through seven. Kingship purpose number two, you might be able to guess, is in fact mercy. And this is found in verses eight through 14. And what happens here is Solomon pivots. And instead of first talking about what the king will do and then talking about what it will look like, he's going to go in reverse order and talk about what it looks like and then what it is that the king will do. So we have this chiastic structure to the way that these two purposes are set up and explained here. And then finally, we finish with a word of celebration. And this is found in verses 13 through 20. This is the celebration of the king. And the celebration centers around this concept of an eternal name. Okay, one of the promises that God makes from Second Samuel, chapter seven to David, that I will make a great name for you, a name that is like the great men of old. So let's dive in and take a look at our first purpose, this concept of goodness. Now, as a reminder, because it's been a few weeks, goodness is the idea of the essence of God himself as both good and the source of all good which leans towards the idea of prosperity and is experienced in the way of prosperity. This is reflecting about God. This is the essence of God in both who he is and also how he is experienced by those who receive his goodness. Okay. And the purpose here is to communicate the character of God within the role of the administration of justice. So purpose number one, reflecting, connected to the goodness of God, is about communicating the character of God in the administration of justice. Now, there's two requests in this hymn, and the first one jumps right at the very first verse. Give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. What's happening here is Solomon is asking God to give God's own just judgment and God's own righteousness. Two things that are not capable of being manufactured within the heart of man. Two things that are required completely and solely on God. The ability to judge justly and the ability to stand rightly and be right. Solomon, on behalf of the king and as the king, requests those things from God. He's asking to be given access to the supernatural and divine wisdom and rightness so that he may rightly rule as king. Now, as a physical king, Solomon will use this rightness and last judgment, and I'm sorry, just judgment of God for several things. In verse 2, he will judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Good to know that if God hands over some of his just judgment and righteousness, that it will, in fact, be used by the king in order to judge rightly. This idea of judging is the idea of comparing and deciding. There's a pretty famous story uh, that, re- that, that is told about Solomon in Scripture where he has to compare Perhaps the stories of two women who claim ownership of a child and then make a decision as to how their sides will be heard. And he is literally in this in this verse, uh, recognizing his role in that area and asking for the help of God. Now, this judging by the rightness and just judgment of God leads to a new thing in verse three. Verse three is very interesting The mountains will bring peace to the people and the little hills by righteousness. What's happening here is that as the rightness and real just judgment of God are being used in order to rule rightly by the king, protection and security is being realized in the land. Within the confines of land, the mountains and the hills Peace will be experienced. Divine protection. Fulfilled completion from God. But that's not it. In verse 4, Solomon says, he will bring justice to the poor of the people. He will save the children of the needy and he will break into pieces the oppressor. So there are three ways in which Solomon will use the rightness and just judgment of God in verse four. Number one, the deliverance of justice for the poor. Now, this phraseology of poor and needy that Solomon uses here goes directly back to Psalm 86. Okay, Our very first sermon of this series, we looked at exactly this phraseology. And the idea was this. When you read the word poor, you're talking about those who are poor in status. They have no power. They do not have the ability to dictate their life towards the better. Okay, And often the people without power are the people without money, the people without status, the people without influence. And so when Solomon talks about the poor, he's talking about those who lack power. And when he's talking about the needy, He's literally meaning needy. These are the people who are without. They do not have. And they must be given. Otherwise, they will not have. Okay. So in verse four, the rightness and just judgment of God will lead to justice for those who do not have power. Deliverance for the children, the most vulnerable of those who are needy and without. It's one thing for parents to be needy and without. It's another thing for those that are the most vulnerable and have nothing to be delivered and taken care of. And Solomon, keep in mind, is saying that is in fact the purpose of the king. The purpose of the king is not to fulfill his own quest for power, but the purpose of the king is to use the divine, that which has been granted by the goodness of God himself. To seek justice and care for the most vulnerable. And finally, how is that going to happen? Well, in order for good to abound, evil must be destroyed. And the idea is that the rightness and just judgment of God will be used to literally crush those who oppress the poor. Those who take advantage of those who are powerless. So. That's what the king will do. What will it look like? Well, in this section, talking about goodness as the first purpose of the king, Solomon is, in, is intentionally using what we would call upholding and refreshing language. Okay? Um, we mentioned that the poor are those that are powerless, the needy are those who are without. Uh, This is the exact phraseology and imagery that his father, David, used in Psalm 36. And by using power to bring justice to the powerless, the king is creating a place of peace. Now, this idea of peace, shalom in the Hebrew, is actually a concept that's not just the absence of conflict. This is the idea of a place of peace. And a situation where there is completeness and soundness. That's how peace is is described biblically. It's to be in a place where there can be completeness and soundness. I don't know about you, but sometimes God uses conflict in my life and the lessons that come about from that to bring a full understanding and fullness of joy. So when we say peace is not just the absence of conflict, peace really gets to the heart of working through conflict so that God can do his work in us and through us to bring us to a place of completeness and soundness, which is the working of peace. So what is it going to look like? Well, in verse 5, we read, they shall fear you as long as the sun and moon endure throughout all generations. This means that the fear of God, the right perspective on who God is and the right response to him can continue open-endedly. So long as the King walks in obedience to his calling. Now you might say, well, There's a whole lot more involved than just the king walking in obedience to his calling. But I will draw your attention back to the lessons that are learned after the division of the kingdom of God. When the kingdom is divided north and south and we embark on two separate roads with a lineage of kings, we read that for the northern kingdom, history doesn't last very long because as a whole, the kings that take the throne turn away from the living God. And they live according to the statutes of what they think is right. And they promote worship in a way that God says is not how he is to be worshipped. And what happens to the people? They follow. They follow the path established by the king. But then we read about the southern kingdom. And we read where there are times where in the southern kingdom there are kings who rise up and gain the throne. And they do the same thing. They walk away from the truth of God. But then God raises up a king who is brought back to the reality of the truth of his word and revival takes place, starting with the King who says, we must stop walking in disobedience and we must walk the path of truth. And what happens to the nation in the descriptions of those times, the nation follows after the King. And so to say that the fear of God will continue so long as the King walks in obedience is to speak From a perspective after the fact, looking at the actual history of Israel and saying, this is true. When the king walked in obedience, when the king used his power and his. Receiving the goodness of God to administer justice and care for the poor and lead the people in the truth of the word of God, they followed and peace prevailed. In verse six, we read. He shall come down like rain upon the grass before mowing like showers that water the earth. What this also will look like, the king embracing the goodness of God and using the righteousness and just judgment of God to fulfill his purpose. This will look like there is actual connection with God's representative. The king who descends to the people, is the representation acting as a representative of God and it's building and nourishing connection and relationship between the one who represents God to the people and those that are encouraged and nourished by God himself. In verse seven, we read concluding this first section of purpose in his days, the righteous shall flourish and abundance of peace until the moon is no more. There will be abundant demonstrations of God's righteousness and peace. And like we mentioned before, the king takes the lead in doing right, and the people will follow, and it will create this sound environment of completeness and wholeness. So in summary, the first purpose of the king, that being the goodness of God, established and revealed and experienced by the King and the people of the kingdom. When God blesses the King with his righteousness and his just judgment, and the King reflects that goodness of God in the way that he rules justice for all power for the powerless, upholding those who are in need, then peace abounds and righteousness is demonstrated. Now, I have to pause here and say this. None of us are kings. None of us understand the the pressure. None of us understand the responsibility of what it means to be accountable to God, to lead a nation. So instead of asking, how will you as a king do this? I will ask, how do you rule in your place of authority? whether it's the home, the workplace, school, church, the groups that you are a part of, how do you rule in your place of authority? Do you pursue justice? Are you committed to lifting up the powerless? Are you committed to righteousness? Do you seek to build an atmosphere of peace? Verses 8 through 14 take us to the second purpose of kingship. And this is the purpose of mercy. Now, this one is going to be presented in the opposite order. We will begin with what the reign of the king will look like. Sorry, we're going to begin with, sorry. Verse 8 gives us a transition. Transition. And this is going to bring us towards an emphasis on the victorious reign of the king. What it will be and how it is measured. And it's in reverse order from the first purpose, because what it looks like, here's what it looks like comes first. Okay. now I'm going to give you a warning up front. I've identified this second purpose as mercy. Okay, which the the exploded concept for us is the undeserved, steadfast, loving kindness of God. Um, It's not going to look like that. okay, through the first few verses here, but stick with me and it'll all make sense. In verse eight, Solomon writes, he shall have dominion also from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. What this looks like is dominance. Dominance and rule beyond just Israel, across the world, generically speaking. This idea of from sea to sea, we even understand that in modern day United States of America. This idea of from the river to the ends of the earth is an unspecified generic understanding that the dominance of the king who is living according to his purpose And ruling according to his purpose will lead to dominion across the earth. There's no limit to the extent in which God's promise to grow and establish the kingdom could be realized and fulfilled. In verse nine, Solomon says, those who dwell in the wilderness will bow before him and his enemies will lick the dust. This is the idea of control, because those who dwell in the wilderness those are the ungovernable ones. Those are the ones that fall under no easy man's authority. They are the hardest to control. Some translations even talk about the wild beasts and their speculation as to whether they mean humans or animals. These are the ones who are ungovernable and yet As the kingdom of God goes forth in obedience according to the purposes of grace and mercy, there will in fact be control over that which is ungovernable and humiliation upon the enemy. This idea of licking the dust. The same contempt as shown all the way back in Genesis 3 when God says to the serpent, All the days of your life you will crawl on your belly and consume the dust of the earth. This is lick not quite as intense. And finally, in verses 10 and 11, the idea, the picture that we get of purpose. Number two is this, the Kings of Tarshish and of the isles will bring presents; The Kings of Sheba and Saba will offer gifts. Yes. All Kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. This is the idea of unfettered victory. The kingship of God reigns victorious over the ends of the earth and all who would call themselves kings and rulers. The emphasis is not on specific people, even though you might be led to think that by the mentioning of Tarshish, this conjures conjures as far as the people groups go to the west. Sheba conjures as far as the people groups go to the south of the Arabian Peninsula. And Seba We are not sure what that is, but the idea being an extension of as far as the peoples go in a different direction. All of the people groups and all of the kings who rule over those peoples find themselves subject to the victory of the king. Now, what is it that causes such dominant victory? We've kind of turned pretty drastically here. We went from Use the goodness of God to bring power to the powerless and to uphold those who are needy to all of a sudden we are waving the flag of victory and speaking about conquest and the expansion of the kingdom. Well, looking at the next set of verses that enables us to see um, what the king will do, we come face to face with salvation language. Look at verse 12, for he will deliver the needy when he cries, the poor also and him who has no helper. We've seen this word for deliver before from Psalm 86, when David says, you have plundered my soul from Sheol, the abode of the dead. This idea of deliver is to plunder or snatch up those who are vulnerable from that which could destroy them. David is identifying this back in Psalm 86 as God's steadfast love, mercy for the poor and needy. And Solomon here agrees this is, in fact, mercy. In verse 13, we read, he will spare the poor and the needy, and he will save the souls of the needy. This idea of spare is the idea of compassion, compassion for the powerless and those who are without The idea of save in verse 13 is to deliver from death, to deliver the very life, the very breath of the needy from death. And in verse 14, Solomon says he will redeem their life from oppression and violence and precious shall be their blood in his sight. Now, this idea of redeem. I want you to notice. That it's different than deliver, because this is the first time where he mentions the fact that those who are oppressed, those who are poor, those who are needy, their blood may in fact be shed, be spilled. Redemption is different than deliverance. The violence may very well kill them, but when it does, their blood shall be counted as precious. In verse 15, we get our final statement of what the king will do, and it is very simple. He shall live. Now, this is where we stop and we reflect on the fact that Solomon has not just been talking about himself, has not just been talking about the king, the one who sits on the throne. And like his father, David, and perhaps without even realizing what Solomon is doing is making the case for Jesus as the eternal fulfillment of the covenant made with David. Jesus is the righteous one, the very righteousness of God, and he will judge with righteousness, but he is also the justifier And in him is perfect protection and security in Christ. We have peace with God because he himself is our peace. He brought sight for the blind healing for the lame and relief for those who are crushed in spirit. His death paid the price for sin and his resurrection broke the chains of sin and death. Our identity is in him and his obedience gives us right standing with the father. He is our high priest, and in him we live and move and have our being. He is the Lord of all creation, and all things have been placed under his feet. And at his name, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And he was dead, but behold, he is alive. We have no knowledge of God's goodness without Christ. We have when we never experience the mercy of God apart from Christ. And this leads us to the third and final section of this psalm. This is the section of celebration, verses 15 through 20. Verse 15, the gold of Sheba will be given to him. Prayer also will be made for him continually, and daily he shall be praised. Reminds us that Christ is worthy of all wealth, all prayer, and all blessing. Verse 16, there will be an abundance of grain in the earth on top of the mountain. Its fruit shall wave like Lebanon, and those of the city shall flourish like grass of the earth. Reminds us that Christ is the bread of life, and that in him is abundance and fullness of joy. Verse 17, his name shall endure forever. His name shall continue as long as the sun and men shall be blessed in him and all nations shall call him blessed. Reminds us that his name, the very name promised by God in 2 Samuel chapter 7, passes beyond the vanishing point into forever. And those named by his name will continue to propagate And kneel before him in blessing. Verse 18 says, blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who only does wondrous things. And this builds on David's central declaration from Psalm 8610, that you are great and do wondrous things and that you alone are God. Verse 19 says, blessed be his glorious name forever and let the whole earth be filled with his glory And this provides the closing request. We opened in verse one with Solomon asking for the righteousness and the just judgment of God so that he might rule in righteousness and pass judgment justly. Here in functionally, the final verse, Solomon asks, requests, That ultimately, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ might go forth and fill all of creation. Didn't understand that that's what he was asking, but that's indeed what he was asking. And verse 20, some might skip over it. Verse 20, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. You know, a better translation there instead of ended would be completed or accomplished. And this reminds us that all the promises of God find their yes in Christ, because ultimately what God promised in 2 Samuel 7 is fulfilled in Christ. Now, to close, I skipped three words and we have to deal with them. Verse 19 David, I'm sorry, not David. That's the first time I did that. I thought that would happen a lot today. Solomon in verse 19 uses the responsive double amen. Now, this is interesting because we don't get the double amen a whole lot in Scripture. And when we do get it just a handful of times in the Old Testament, it is specifically and purposely to affirm and connect with the revealed word of God. It's used to in connection with blessing. It's also used in connection with cursing, but it is used specifically as the word of God is revealed and it is affirmed after the revelation of God. And that is also the case here. But in the new Testament, when we take all of this and we see the ultimate fulfillment in Christ Christ liberally uses the double amen, and John records it very liberally for us. The difference is that instead of using the double amen in the New Testament, uh, the way it's used in the Old Testament to respond to and affirm truth that has been spoken, Christ uses the double amen at the beginning As an effort to show that he is the one that is now establishing truth. It's not a response to the truth that has been spoken. It is the so be it, the affirmation, before the truth is even spoken, which establishes the truth. So there's a full circle of fulfillment in the double amen. And to close out our time together, we're going to take a look at a selection of the double amen statements recorded in John's gospel. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. An hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the son of God and those who hear will live. It was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. Whoever believes has eternal life. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Before Abraham was, I am. I am the door of the sheep. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. Greater works than these will he do because I am going to the father. You will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. And whatever you ask for of the father in my name, he will give it to you. Surely the goodness of God experienced through the steadfast loving kindness of Christ will hound us for the whole of our days and we will make our home in the household of Christ forever and ever. Amen. Pray with me, please. You are great. O Lord, and greatly to be praised. Your greatness is unsearchable. You are gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Blessed be your glorious name forever. Forgive us for neglecting those that are powerless and in need. Cause us to be convinced that the blessings of your goodness and mercy are given so that we might serve others and pursue peace. Where we have been strengthened and uplifted, challenge us to strengthen and uplift those that you bring across our path. Teach us your way and cause us to walk in your truth. Unite our hearts and concentrate our affections to fear your name. Let the earth be filled with the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen and amen.